This is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community help, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today is Vinya Logan. Hello, it's been a while. I am a consultant at sociallyconstructed.online, and I got involved with chaos because I'm a part of the social listening metric. Welcome. And myself, Georg Link. Hi, everyone. Good to be back with you. I'm the co-lead of the Chaos Governing Board, co-founder of Chaos, facilitate the app ecosystem working group, and I run this podcast. Outside of Chaos, I work at Biturgia as the director of sales. I teach about open source communities at Brandeis University. And I'm the lead for the IEEE SA Open Community Advisory Group. And we are super excited today to have Erin Staples with us from Orbit to talk about social science theories. Hi, Erin. Hey, how are you all? Doing good. Fantastic. How are you? Good, good. I'm stoked to be here. I'm Erin. I work at Orbit on their community team, really overseeing their users and the user community there. From that previously, I've dove into fandom a little bit. I have a master's degree in journalism, media innovation from NYU, but have kind of taken a few detours in my own career, looking at social science and media and how this whole internet world works a little bit. I'm super excited to get into this and then tease out what we can learn about it for community health and how to understand it through metrics. Where should we start? Open source, social science, why even care? (laughs) How does that relate? I think it's a really fascinating field. So kind of one thing that I work at Orbit and one thing that we're always trying to battle is like, how do you build a, a healthy community? But what does that look like from a numbers perspective? Which is sometimes very much the antithesis of a community. I always run the joke when I'm explaining it or teaching it that when we have friends online, we don't just say, oh my goodness, you're my Twitter friend. We go, oh my goodness, you're my friend that I met through Twitter that we've now built a relationship across a multitude of platforms. It's not a one or the other. It is kind of this full collaborative. Sometimes it's like totally like at the opposite of one another, that like measuring and friendship. But I think it's really important that we acknowledge these feelings and presence and the types of behaviors so we can truly understand if they're healthy spaces that we're creating. How did you get interested in this topic? So I've always been a bit of a nerd. comes with the glasses. One thing that I've noticed is all throughout my career and my like learnings of everything, I was a very online child. A very, I was always the one person that my parents were like, don't talk to strangers on the internet. And sorry, mom, I'm still doing it. I've just now turned it into a career. I think it's part of all of that. Um, like, <laughs> I think it's part of this whole like journey of making it a career. 
It's really interesting to me to see because it's like we are quick to qualify a friend as more or less of a friend than our online friends are in many ways. It's like, why do we do that? Like, we're still building authentic relationships online. Like, that doesn't make them any less of a person. We just happen to meet differently. And that was kind of that of curiosity and just didn't realize it was a career until later on in my career path. Yeah. And that definitely seems to explain the social science aspect of it too. This notion that the virtual space, and we've definitely felt this recently, where the virtual space isn't just so much a in real life versus in virtual space kind of thing. We have successfully augmented our world with an entirely new, arguably intangible one that works in almost exactly the same way. So social scientists, they've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, we're still figuring it out. There's no exact science. We're very much in this like wild experimentation phase. I especially think since COVID happened, one thing that we've really discovered is even more people have moved online, which is cool. I love it. But I think it's like that mass effect when you hit a certain number of people, you even start to see more trends happening or things accelerating or kind of changing at a different rate. Absolutely. So for the social science conversation and for fandom, can you tell us a little bit about how you started to explore this gigantic topic? One thing that I've been really interested in is when you're running a open source community or you're run a project or a online community of any way, shape, form, one of the most important things I think that's is like, you have to make sure that your contributors feel valued or you're creating a very like inclusive, mindful environment online. I think sometimes we get the very bad idea that people on the internet can be toxic or people on the internet can be bad or internet collaboration. Talking to strangers is an inherently bad thing. However, I think we can actually learn a lot from how fandom communities measure health and production and co-creation and learn about what does that tell us about not only the ethics of these online spaces, but also how do you reward and create surprise and delight and dare I say like new friends through these endeavors? Like, I feel like that's a very like pie in the sky, rainbow, glitter, gold, but I feel like that's still an important thing to talk about is these spaces can be very inherently friendly and Yeah. And coming from my own background, I also have somewhat of a background in academia, specifically when it comes to MMOs, massively multiplayer online games. I did a lot of research on Guild Wars 2 and World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy 14. And fairly frequently, you could go into a guild, a collection of people put together to perform a task or to role play in the specific group. There was almost no difference between a person role-playing in a role-playing guild and someone rolling dice at the table for our D&D loving listeners out there. There was almost virtually no difference. There was just a matter of the world. But the social dynamics in those groups had important changes that needed to be made in order to suit the environment. I think that's really interesting. I did a little bit of the multiplayer online games myself. And it reminds me a lot of the different parallels that we see in these behaviors. So whether it's as simple as like rolling a dice or having that element of randomness, there's also this element of collaboration and even like the like identities of in-groups and out-groups. Like you have the quote unquote popular player or the quote unquote cool kids in these communities. So there's actually a journal article I love from Rachel Winter, Anna Salter, and Mel Sanville who wrote about the communities of making 
And they kind of dove into this concept between fandom and open source. And I think much like we've seen in the gaming world, in the world of Warcraft, like we've also seen the different types of how behaviors kind of tie into one another. So gifting is a very like, like it's a game concept. Like when we're playing games or video games or gifting is a very like, it's part of that collaborativeness. It's like, hey, good on you. Here's a way of me rewarding that behavior in a very positive manner. We also see that happening in the fandom world. I think of when fans come together and co-create or acknowledge, even just like public displays of acknowledgement, sharing different ways. Like when we think of, I think the pretty stereotypical example is the comic cons. When we come together and celebrate a fan culture through a comic con or a gathering, there's certain behaviors that we start to see to bring it all together. What kind of behaviors? Can you go a little bit more in depth? So in these like behaviors, a lot of times, like when we think of Comic-Con, I think the most classic example is we start to see people dress up or imitate their type of behavior. I think even the behavior of a simply attending a Comic-Con in person is part of a pilgrimage that you make. It's just kind of that way of that action of attending. Currently, as we record this in October, we've got a couple developer-related events coming up. I know we've got RubyCon up on the kind of forefront of everything, but that can be even attending one of those conferences can be and take the form of a pilgrimage. Or I know the common one in tech is often your hoodie. Like everybody's got the tech hoodie with the logo on it. That in many ways is you identifying yourself or making a kind of that impersonation, like showing that loyalty or the evangelization of it all. Or the stickers on our laptops. That's in the open source world, very popular. Stickers are like the currency at these events. And I just had the pleasure of going to the open source summit, North America. This is the first in-person event since a very long time that I've gone to. And yeah, it's really interesting. And thinking back from a research perspective, when open source and free software came about and the researchers were like, how software being created by a community of volunteers, fans, whatever you want to call them, how does this even work? What is motivating them? How do they collaborate, work together? There was a lot of research on that, finding you know, that people who volunteer have a lot of things they learn. They enjoy the companionship and being with others, helping each other and there's this personal attachment that you see in fandoms and open source. So I think the comparison makes sense here. Just these past few weekends, I think it was two weekends ago, I was actually at a convention for steampunk. So it doesn't even really have like a central piece of content to it, really. It's just this general vibe that a lot of people really love. They started writing literature for it. They started writing content, almost completely a community-driven thing. And I can honestly say I felt everything that you've both talked about. I saw the stickers. I saw the connections. Just dressing up in the garb of a steampunk person. And they also have this activity called tea dueling. So now you get to be a tea duelist. Highly recommend looking into it uh, for the listeners out there. But all of these things just kind of come together, regardless of whether or not you have a stadium community, a private community, like run by a YouTuber an open source community, it really does feel like a cultural universal, this idea of connection and affiliation through expression. And I love that you brought that up. Back to that journal article, one thing that they said, and I'm going to kind of quote from the article here, 
what they're talking about is they actually talked about GitHub as the social network, which most of us, I don't think, think of that. Like, is GitHub a social network? Like many of us who spend way too much time on Twitter points to myself. It many ways, like it has the same behaviors. You can follow other developers or watch repositories and kind of check up on their latest activity and be shamed by those little green squares that tell me I'm never on there enough. But I think like a lot of these behaviors are things that we also see in the fandom world. We really much kind of choose platforms. Like we choose GitHub has kind of become the de facto a lot of the times because of so many other people are on that. I'm not going to bring someone over to another platform. It's the de facto because their people are there and it still like prioritizes like that public access and the different coding practices within each repository. Like it's a known language or lingo that we're kind of already established. So we've talked a lot about these fans, volunteers, really getting engaged and open source is changing and has changed over the last 10, 15 years with a lot more organizations getting involved in this creation of software and actually paying employees to be in these communities. Are there any thoughts or theories on how that is changing the dynamics? Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting one. I think as open source has kind of taken off and validated, I think it's really awesome because in many ways, this does allow creators or contributors to receive a living from this. Sometimes we're just doing it out of the goodness of our hearts and starred repositories are great, but do they necessarily pay your bills? I don't think so. Can't quite get there yet, but I can't I, eat GitHub stars. No. Yeah. I mean, that'd be really cool. Or like likes on Twitter. I, mm. Hey, maybe they should take a YouTube route, just adding ads before you access a repository. Cause that's a terrible idea. Yeah. It has been tried and has not gone really well. I mean, why don't we just like make a token out of this? Isn't that what crypto is telling us? It's like, we can just like make a <laughs> social token. <laughs> Of a token contributions added to GitHub. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's really interesting. And this whole idea has actually, it's funny. It's like, wow, like we love social. This is why I love this industry of social science, because all of this has already in many ways been done. Like we talked about the same thing with fandom, like um, Disney bought out Star Wars and people were so mad. People were so mad. And it's about coming, I think, with much like authenticity and honesty. I think um, in researching for this podcast, I actually was diving into like the history of open source and I was talking about Linus Torvald and kind of his infamous bad behavior. And he was yeah. like, I didn't actually like want to make, he, and he explicitly said like, it was not my intention to create a community. It was my intention to like create a product and it came a community and I kind of didn't know what to do, which is like a thing. Yeah, that happens. The fun thing about that is when we go to CMX for like community managers, we talk to community managers the world over and the vast majority of them have said, I built a community on accident, had no idea what to do and took responsibility for it. So here I am. And then you have Linus Torvalds up at the top, kind of saying, I didn't intend to build this thing. Now I'm building architecture. Now I have all of these connections and now I still don't know what to do, but he's at the top of one of the biggest communities out there. And there's a certain social responsibility that a lot of people are asking him to step up to and he's not doing it. 
I think he has. Didn't he take a break and really dove into... Yeah, stepped aside. Yeah, for a little bit, and they adopted a new code of conduct in the Linux. I thought that all just happened last year. Yeah, if I remember correctly, he chose to step aside specifically so that someone else could do it. Yeah, I'll have to look that up again. But I yeah. think he even had a mea culpa and said, hey, I'll improve. Yeah, I I do remember that happening. Yeah, probably worth looking into again. <laughs> I just found the, the YC post about the Hacker News post about his apologizing for his behavior. But I think it brings up a, a certain point, like it's very easy to forget we're human. It's very easy to forget we're people especially like when we're behind our computer screens and we're not having face-to-face interaction. Like right now we're recording this podcast and I can make a face and I can see how react. Like if I say something completely off kilter, one of you might be like, Oh, Ooh, Aaron, like that's no. But when we're just like committing to repose or we're talking and we are not seeing the space, which kind of makes me excited for audio, but also kind of sad, like concerned for audio. I don't think it has the same gravity necessary. It's, I think it's really important that we're creating these online spaces and we're creating spaces that are human first, which gets me excited about in many ways. It gets me very excited about more companies and organizations getting involved and paying fair wages and establishing formal code of conduct. But it also makes me mindful that also makes it that areas are ripe for exploitation. I think of what's happening in the community world right now or all of a sudden it feels like every company is a community company and you're like, whoa, great, cool. Which is awesome because we're thinking about the larger impacts of it, but we really break down like on a lot of the work I do at Orbit is like, why did you make this community? What is your goals? Like, why did you create this in the first place? Why do you want to do this? And really establishing that intention. And sometimes that means you're not starting a community. And that means you're handing off your community to the original creators. And I think that's so important to manage. And I think it's so important to understand. Or also when it comes to measuring, let's throw out the numbers metric. We don't want to necessarily measure how many people. We want to know things like how often have they participated or who maybe came in, participated once and never came back again. Because that could be a sign of like toxic behavior happening in your community or you know, your community not feeling welcoming or creating a sense of belonging. If you see someone like, how many times have we been somewhere once when, oof. Yikes. You don't come back to somewhere you feel uncomfortable. That's just not what you do. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. I bring this up because I did actually research this community semi-academically I used it as a lot of examples in my past, but there's this uh, website called Budget Light Forums that my partner is a part of, and uh, she's female on the platform. And for a very long time, there was this sense that she had to continually express that fact. And when she stopped, there was like this default that occurred 
despite being like one of the veterans of the group. And that is not necessarily something that can necessarily be measured in numbers because it's dark data. It's data that is collected by virtue of not being collectible. I think it goes back to what Aaron was saying also with how the community's building and the communication is so different when we are in person where we get all of these cues and then we go into an environment where everything is reduced to 32 bits or whatever and just words on a screen and it just doesn't convey the same information and then it, people pick it up differently and i know there's been a lot of research on computer mediated communication and how that is changing the way how we convey messages, how we perceive messages, and then how it makes us feel also. And it's just fascinating that even though we are limiting ourselves through the medium by which we build communities, we can still achieve that. Yeah, it's a, what is it, Marshall McLuhan? Uh, the medium is the message. It's many ways of all of that, the way that we think about these online spaces and how we transmit information. It tells you something if I'm on Clubhouse from an, like in many ways in an ethics standpoint, like when they're having a lot of their ethics things, if I am a user of the platform, there's some implied connotation to the different ethics values that I have. Or maybe it's even an ethics I don't understand of the ethics behind the platform. You know, if I told you I was going and finding information on 4chan, you might have a very different perception of that information or even these hidden connotations or lingos that happen. I think that's part of the inherently the way that we communicate with nuance online. In a lot of ways, I think a social science really has a lot of work to do in the context of vulgarity used for purposes of damage versus vulgarity used for purposes of collection. And one example that I bring up, there was actually a Chan site that included a suicide board. And they shared memes about being suicidal. And a large majority of the people on that channel actually really enjoyed this. It flew under the radar. A lot of teenagers used it in order to maintain mental health. And then when they did the same thing on Reddit with a similar thread, it came under fire immediately because people are like, no, we cannot be making memes that are essentially supporting suicidal ideation. And all of the people on that platform are like, yeah, but no, we've been doing this for years and it's actually been helping me understand that I'm not alone. I think it's interesting. I think I am no expert in moderation or censoring content. And it's, I think there's so much more nuance that goes into the ways that we communicate these, especially value systems online. And it's to bring it in a work perspective. It's like, I think, where do those boundaries lie? Like, where does my behavior as an online individual, especially in worlds like open source, where you have some bleeding boundaries. I think of community work as well. You have bleeding boundaries. I don't clock out of my nine to five and be like, oh, it's 515. I'm no longer like not talking to you. You're not my friend anymore. You are my work friend. That's weird. I think bringing it back to the original Twitter example, it's weird. Only going to maintain this relationship on Twitter. It's, we don't do that. It's weird. It's not normal human behavior. <laughs> yeah. In, in the Chaos Project, we think about how do we understand the health of communities with all of this 
fuzziness and all of the information that we cannot get from looking at the log of what messages have been sent. And so one of the approaches or two of the approaches that we talk about is if you want to understand the community, you actually have to talk to the community members to understand, hey, how do you perceive these interactions? How does that make you feel? Do you feel welcome included? Do you feel like you can contribute? Do you feel like other people are acknowledging what you're doing? And I just think that is so critical to acknowledge that as we are measuring open source communities and the health of communities, that there's so much going on, there's no other way to know besides asking. How do you feel? I love that. We need more human in these online spaces and these workspaces, even if it's like for work. Like if you work at an organization and it is an open source organization, that is great. We need to be leaders in this and make sure that we're creating healthy spaces. But I think as much as we need to ask, how does this make you feel? We also should be asking and holding space for someone to be like, you know what? I'm not okay today. Because I think many times, like, especially like I live in New York currently, kind of the rumor of New Yorkers is we're all kind of giant jerks, but it's very much like, it's how do you hold space for someone to be like, you know what? I'm really bad. And making sure that we're kind of like holding space for that and creating feedback loops and not just like waiting till someone is at a problem, but also doing proactive that research. So I think like if we can continue to think through ways, like as we wrap this kind of up with a nice little bow, if we can continue to think of ways of like, how are we doing that proactive research? Yeah. And I also think that's been a difficulty that people have been having in, dare I say it, knowing we have already brought this up earlier, physical spaces. In a lot of physical spaces and cultures, a lot of social scientists are finding that there is indeed a detriment to the space of emotion in virtually every walk of life. We initially started to think about like, Spaces for emotion in the workplace, the emotional labor of an individual having to work on a support line without having the mental health backup whenever that line goes a little bit different. Crisis care workers who aren't receiving a lot of that assistance. So in a physical space, we have a bunch of research and a bunch of context and a bunch of opportunity to really understand how humans try to make space for the personal in their social And I think that we've gone online so fast that that cultural backup, that knowledge, that learning, that consciousness for how we interact with each other in physical space, moving into an online environment has suddenly become extra problematic. And in a lot of ways, there's not a lot of solution for that because there's still a lot of opportunity for social science to give us an understanding of how we should be building those spaces in online contexts. I'm like sitting here like oozing in all this like goodness because this is one I don't, especially like emotional labor in physical spaces, I don't think we've quite figured out how to do that online yet. I often think if someone's having a bad day in a public forum online, you scroll through the comments on someone who's having a really bad day or like, what is the appropriate reaction? Like, do I like this tweet? We don't know that norm. I don't know that norm. If someone knows that norm, can they please like let me know what I'm supposed to do with DM me on what I'm supposed to do on like if they're having a bad day in that space? Yeah. And it's also really funny because there are dozens of models and the orbit model is one of them actually, where there's this main North Star guiding line of 
self-disclosure is the gold at the end of the rainbow for any community. If you can encourage a much affiliation and connection and uh, reciprocal participation, people are getting extrinsic and intrinsic award such that they feel comfortable self-disclosing something sensitive in your community. You've won. They're here for a while. But then there's the flip side of, great, if that happens, what do you do now? Is that a part of your policies? Are you actually looking to measure that? Is there a lead metric that you can use in order to determine that so that it's coming and your community doesn't get blindsided? Is there even a way to do that? Yeah, I love all of this. I think there's a lot that we can learn and we're still learning. I'm excited to kind of learn more about it as we figure it out. Yeah. I think it's really awesome now that we've all been forced to go more online. Maybe in a sense, we could say we're catching up to open source because open source was empowered and enabled by building communities online. And we've seen a lot of things happening in open source that we're now experiencing as everyone is online. Maintainer burnout, that has existed before COVID. It's something we've talked about for a long time where maintainers of open source projects feel a lot of pressure from their communities to maintain the quality of the code for being responsive. When someone says, hey, your code update suddenly broke my 10,000 cars that I'm trying to sell as a company, can you fly out real quick to fix it for us? But there are stories in open source like this where maintainers are being as these centers of the open source projects or communities around them, some of them feel like we've talked about this for a long time now, feel like they're not being appreciated or valued. And anyway, I just think having some way where we can now think about how do we make this a better space for everyone is a really good time to do it. Yeah. And I definitely think that social science has a lot to do, but it's also come a certain way. I feel like one example is the fact that Margaret Mead, one of the founders of anthropology discussing gender in a variety of different cultures, she has a lot that we can learn from when it comes to interaction in intercultural online spaces across countries, kind of a transcultural situation. So there's a lot of social science already out there that we could use to inform this problem Maybe it's worth us spending a little bit of time discussing those if you might be familiar with any, Erin. Yeah, I think the biggest one is, I guess I'm going to take it like the explain like M5 just because we have so many new online folks. And I think for a little bit of like Dunning-Kruger syndrome, like the more you know, the less you know, as new people come into the space and like the best thing to do is make it inclusionary. There's a really great blog post. Of course, it's not in the ones that I linked to all previously, but there's a really great blog post that I love that's simply about how do you create culture and change. But it's a lot of, you just, the simple action of saying, hey, we don't allow that here is great. That sounds very much related to our code of conduct that we created in open source communities where we say, hey, let's all agree to be nice to each other. And if someone steps out of line, let's have a process in place or some measures in place where we can maintain a good, healthy community and, if necessary, have the tools to kick someone out if they don't want to comply. So we've had a great conversation. We're coming up on the end of the podcast. I 
wish we had more time. But Erin, if someone wants to get in touch with you and follow your work, where can they find you online? Yeah, no, you can find me personally on Twitter, which is the platform I spend probably more time than I really should on. But it's at Twitter.com. My handle is Erin McHale, E-R-I-N-M-I-K-A-I-L or ErinMikhailStaples.com. You can also like hang out with me on Orbit. So we're at Orbit Model and doing a lot of fun stuff there. Come find me online. That's awesome. So we always like to end our episodes with value ads, where we share something that has brought value, joy, or meaning into our life recently. And for me, I have been rereading the Aragon series by Christopher Pauli, who wrote the first book when he was like 15. And I read Aragon back in Germany when I was a teenager. And I never actually finished the series. So now I took the time to reread it in English and to actually finish it. I just two days ago, as of this recording, two days ago, I got to the climax of the story. They finally overcame the bad king. And yeah, it's been good. It's been good for me. Good, good. Yeah. I have recently come into like making book clubs and stuff like that myself. And Aragon is definitely one of my well-remembered fond favorites when I was a kid. Mine is actually also a book and it's a book done by a professor of mine that I used to have in cultural anthropology studying virtual worlds named Jeffrey Snodgrass. He's at Colorado State University. And he published several months ago, a new book called Systematic Methods for Analyzing Culture, a Practical Guide. And I've kind of been using this off and on pretty much anytime I'm lost about how to tackle something, I'm pulling it out. And I have not quite finished it cover to cover because it's not necessarily one of those books, but I cannot recommend it enough. If you want to get into social science and analyzing your community, definitely pick it up. I love that. I'm going to pick that one up. I think also keeping on the book trend. It was like going around on Twitter a couple of weeks ago and I picked it up. I've been really interested in like climate and urban design. So there's a book called The City is Not a Computer, which is about like urban design and which is kind of a fun little other thing to think about in all of these spaces. Next, we'll be talking about like open source and trees or something. <laughs> I love it. Especially with this whole smart cities conversation that's been going on for a really long time. And our way of thinking about building computers and systems is very different from how city builders and administrators are thinking. So I might look into that. There's a lot here to unpack. Yeah. And if I do remember correctly, there's been a lot of discussion about open source civil engineering where they're using paint on roads and they're asking people to create entirely new forms of intersections and road setups. They're also using video games in order to simulate that information, which is also kind of cool and worth looking into. It is time to say thank you. Thank you, Erin, for coming on today and joining us for this awesome conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm like stoked to be here and stoked to kind of learn more and explore these, the nuances and all of it with you guys. And thank you, Vania, for joining us as a panelist today. Absolutely. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. 
To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.